and welcome to this episode of the Biotechniques Talking Tech News podcast. We'll be focusing on stem cells in cancer research for this instalment, but first, some introductions. I'm Tristan, the digital editor for Biotechniques, and today I'll be speaking to Hans Kierstedt, CEO of Avita Biomedical and leader in the field of stem cell research. I think it's fair to say that Hans' biography contains an A to Z of achievements in scientific research, including directing the Sue and Bill Gross Stem Cell Research Center, acting as the founding advisor of the California Stem Cell Initiative, and winning the University of California at Irvine's Distinguished Award for Research, alongside countless other awards. Hans, I could go on, but I think you'll probably do a better job than me. Um, can you please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? Sure, well, thanks, uh, Tristan. It's really, really nice to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, you know, I am a uh, professor that turned into a CEO, <laughs> um, unwittingly. Uh, I've been uh, classically trained in neuroscience uh, at the University of British Columbia in Canada and University of Cambridge, England for postdoc, and then came down to uh, the United States and took up a professorship at the University of California, Irvine. Marched my ranks through the assistant associate in full and founded a stem cell center right around the time when the stem cell field was really just burgeoning. And I had an opportunity to, you know, influence the field from a, a broad perspective. So I've done a lot of work with yeah, several governments around the world, helping them set their policies into place. Um, I've done a lot of work with industry and, of course, academia and moving this forward, even so much as uh, getting myself involved in ethics um, disputes and discussions about stem cells and their morality and ethical basis. So it's been quite a journey for a scientist to move up this ladder and be exposed to so much in a new burgeoning field. And while doing that, I've uh, created and sold a number of companies and they've all done fairly well, all in the stem cell sector. Okay, perfect. Um, so can you tell us a bit about your current company, Avita's immunotherapy approach? Um, how does it differ from other immunotherapies currently in use, such as CAR-T, for instance? Certainly. Avita Biomedical has a core competence of purity in derivation of stem cells. So my lab was the first in the world to take a stem cell that can become anything in your body and make it into something in purity. I began with oligodendrocytes, a central nervous system cell type. I went on to motor neurons, etc., and uh, several other cell types. But all of them derived to about 99.6% pure. That was the first time in the world that purity had ever been developed and generated a product that you could do a couple things with. You could dump drugs on it for drug development. You could also transplant those cells. Uh, impurity uh, as clearly a requirement for transplantation research. You can't go putting toenails in the spinal cord. So it really was a breakthrough in the field and has been a core competence of mine since developing it, uh, boy, almost 20 years ago. In Avita Biomedical, I lean on that same core competence. When the discovery of the seed of cancer, the tumor-initiating cell or cancer stem cell was made, I didn't have anything to do with that discovery, but when it was discovered, I thought I can apply my core technologies of purification to that. People had discerned that a cancer is born from 1% of the 
tumor, which is a cancer stem cell, cancer is spread from those cells leaving through the blood, thereby called circulating tumor cells to make new tumors, and they are propagated and recurrence occurs because some of those cancer stem cells go to sleep in one's bone marrow for many, many years, only to wake up and the whole cycle of cancer begins again. So although the cells had been discovered, no one had been able to purify them. So I put my techniques onto that field and for the first time in the world was able to pull out that 1% of the seed of a resected tumor. So in stage three recurrent or stage four cancers, uh, cancers are being removed. We then take a small piece of it as fine as a small needle aspirate and purify the 1% cancer stem cells from that and amplify them in purity. So we end up with about 150 million of the patient's own cancer stem cells. And yours are different from mine. Everybody's cancer stem cells have thousands of unique mutations. So we need to get them from the individual. Well, now we have an antigenic source with the signature of the person, and that is the seed of cancer. So then we use a tool out of a toolbox, a typical dendritic cell therapy where uh, mini leukophoresis, a single leukophoresis is taken. The blood is pulled out of the patient and put right back into the patient while the monocytes are being extracted. We then have the patient's monocytes that we mature into dendritic cells. And here we've got the frontline warrior of the immune system ready to stimulate an attack against something. So we feed that dendritic cell um, irradiated and lysed pure cancer stem cells from the patient. And that's our product. It's a dendritic cell that has been primed to kill only the cancer stem cells and every antigenic marker or a multitude of them. So that's the uniqueness. No one else has that antigenic source and no one else is attacking the full complement of driver antigenic mutations. We're not telling the immune system to go kill one protein or two proteins, one particular engineered receptor type. We are instructing the immune system to go attack a signature of hundreds or thousands of antigens that define that person's cancer stem cell. And the, the results are remarkable. We have 72% uh, survival at two years and 54% survival at five years. That's after treating stage three recurrent and stage four patients. There's no other publications in the literature with uh, an efficacy as high as that. So we're very, very pleased for the patients. Wow, that's, uh, that's really fantastic. Those success rates are, as you say, much higher than you see typically. Um, whilst you're doing these, um, priming these cells to target each individual cancer cells, are there a typical set of antigens that your immunotherapies are typically designed to target, or do you find it's completely different for each uh, patient? You know, each patient from which we take the cancer stem cells or tumor-initiating cell population, we run a 34,000-gene exomic analysis, oftentimes with methylation analyses as well. So from their cancer stem cells, we can discern exactly what cancerous mutations they've got, mutations that are associated with cancer, and we can also profile them against HLA sets to see which of them are driver antigenic mutations. So we do have a very precise knowledge of what's messed up in that person's cancer stem cell. 
And what's really interesting is that no person's mutation load is the same as another's. They're all vastly different. When we pool dozens of them and compare them in you know, a Venn diagram, which, which mutations are common to all of them, we're only now beginning to see, to get up to the numbers required for statistics to pull out a handful of very, very common mutated amino acids that map to about 90 different genes. And we, were, we are really looking at that as our Mach 2 treatment. Now we have to generate what's essentially a vaccine against that cancer stem cell of the patient. In the future, we may be able to take a, a common drug off of a shelf for all patients. But for now, this is working extraordinarily well. And uh, we're going to keep education, educating the immune system with the full pan antigenic load of that patient's cancer stem cell. There's another thing that's popped out of there that's very interesting. If we take a cancer from a person a couple of years later, so perhaps they've had a tumor, we've taken a look at that, we've given a vaccine, maybe they come up with another tumor two years later, one of our 28% that doesn't respond, and uh, we take that cancer out, there is definitely a large amount of genetic drift amongst the mutated antigens. So this speaks towards updating the antigenic load before doing a second treatment. And we are doing that so we keep the success rate as high as the 72%. Okay, so there's the, the need to update it as you're treating someone. Yeah, the concept of a maintenance therapy is one that has really never been explored in this field. You know, of course, we're all just trying to come up with a therapy, a frontline therapy that works. But, you know, they don't work very well. Even uh, PD-1 inhibitors, although they're marvelous in having about a one-third, in some cases, 50% efficacy rate, oftentimes it only lasts for two to three years. And, you know, until we're up to 100% efficacy against this insidious disease, there is definitely a need because the amount of people that get this is about one in six. So we've got a ways to go. So until we've got something that is hitting 100% off the bat, and secondly, a maintenance therapy for these individuals, um, I think we've got a lot of work to do. And it's, it's that latter bit, the maintenance therapy, that we are trying to develop for our 72% that, that do survive. That's, uh, that would be a huge contribution to the field and the lives of these people. Okay, um, and so the therapy that you've just described there, does it lend itself to tackling any specific type of cancer particularly well? Um, and equally, does it have any cancers that are um, potentially more guarded against it um, or it may be less effective at treating? You know, I'm really, really delighted to say that this is a platform technology that is applicable to all cancers. We have run clinical studies in five different cancers, melanoma, ovarian, brain, renal cell carcinoma, and liver cancer, and it's working in all of them. So it's really just a bandwidth and money issue right now of strategically for my company, how much money I spend on various trials uh, before getting to major value inflection points where we can afford to branch out into other clinical trials. Um, 
it's a uh, it's a difficult thing and it's a wonderful thing having a a drug that affects every cancer. You know, it's difficult in that money constrains us and we can we see a lot of patients calling and asking for treatment that we cannot uh, approach because if we don't have the FDA approval to do so and the bandwidth or the money uh, to run these advanced clinical trials down. On the good side of it, the partnership possibility is tremendous. The interest is really, really tremendous. And, you know, standing on the shoulders of all of the groups that came before us that contributed to things like developing dendritic, dendritic uh, cell therapies that invented uh, means of identifying uh, stem cells and cancer stem cells, it's really been a confluence of um, work from a number of different disciplines that have brought us here. The fact that this approaches every single cancer, um, it raises the bar for us. It raises the opportunity for uh, money getting. It raises the opportunity for partnerships. And uh, more shots on goal means higher likelihood of success. Okay, so so there aren't any cancers then that are slightly harder to um, to purify those stem cells out of. Um, I just thinking off the top of my head, if you're um, you've got something in glioblastoma, perhaps it's it's harder to uh, to access those stem cells, maybe. No, you know, um, one would think, but um, this begins with a surgical resection of the tumor, which does occur in glioblastoma. We then make our treatment injected into the bloodstream. Usually, a, the, the glioblastoma treatments are not responsive to many, many treatments because the drug can't get through the blood-brain barrier. But in this case, we are actually inducing an immune response in the periphery into the blood system. And it is both a cellular and a humoral immune response. It is very, very diverse and vast. We have pulled the blood from our glioblastoma patients prior to treatment and at multiple time points after. And it's very clear that we see an extraordinarily robust Th1, Th2 immune response. What's most impressive is we see a type 2 hypersensitivity response in their immune system that the literature has shown us incontrovertibly uh, correlates with survival of uh, glioblastoma patients. So we are inducing, in around 70% of our patients, a very, very robust immune response. That immune response can travel in and out of the brain. As you know, there's, there's blood that's coursing in and out. There's many of the factors that course in and out. You have um, cervical lymph node drainage from the central nervous system, etc. So given that our mechanism is an immune response, we do get into the brain. Secondly, we have seen in about 65% of our glioblastoma patients, you know, delightfully, a reduction of tumor markers, 27 different blood-borne tumor markers in their bloodstreams are sequentially decreasing at time points after um, administration of treatment. So we are extremely excited. They have the appropriate immune response and their tumor load is decreasing dramatically in categories like tumor-associated angiogenesis markers, tumor-associated growth factors, and direct tumor markers, showing that uh, uh, you know it's a surrogate marker of efficacy. Nothing beats survival like survival as an outcome measure, but this is really the next best thing.
Okay, so there's there's no difference in your the application of the the treatment once you've um, once you've formulated it when you're treating the glioblastoma versus say when you're doing the ovarian or um, any other type of uh, cancer you're trying you're trying to treat with it. Yeah, that's correct. It's a subcutaneous needle injection, a, a series of them, and honestly, uh, there are no doctors involved. This is just the doctor has to make the original diagnosis. The doctor has to. Uh, clearly do the surgical resection and a surgical oncologist. But after that, it's a nurse that sends us the tumor in the blood. We send back um, frozen needles of the um, treatment itself, and it's a subcutaneous needle injection at the hospital. So very easy, no trauma on the patients. Everybody's had a needle under their skin. And uh, the outcome measure is survival or death. So the patient isn't subject to multiple reports to the hospital for scans and things like that. So we've designed this to be a very easy treatment for the patient, a very easy treatment to administer for the hospitals with a cost of goods that's ridiculously low and will certainly be covered by completely by insurance. You know, that is a major differentiator in this market where we're seeing you know, $450,000 bills hit patients from CAR-T therapies. It's just such a shame that uh, families get hit with a, an insidious disease and then a financially crippling bill. We'll be able to avoid that. Well, that's that's absolutely fantastic to hear. Um, and that sort of takes me on to my, my next point. So in, uh, in 2017, you ran for U.S. Congress. Um, yeah. what, what were your motivations for running and um, what was the experience like? Uh, it was, you know, just one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Um, I was asked to run. Uh, the uh, Both Democratic and Republican parties asked me to run on the basis that the United States Congress has a dearth, a deficit of scientists and healthcare professionals. Most of the United States Congress, our lawmakers, are made up of lawyers that have now repurposed themselves into governance. And field experience in anything to do with healthcare and science is almost entirely lacking. So the applications are so various. Like, think of you know, here we're looking at uh, tariffs and trade right now is in the news. Someone approves a tariff or a trade deal of a whole bunch of, say, Chinese goods that are coming into America. Is anyone looking at what toxins those chairs or tables or stuffs have in them, how they're going to be eventually in landfills and reaching out and perhaps they have a you know, 5,000-year toxicity life in them and they can get into water systems. That's just one example. Is anyone, as another, is anyone looking at genetic manipulation in humans, which is going on right now, and regulating that? You know, scarily, the answer is no right now. But it is true. We just saw coming out of China, um, you know, gross negligence with human cloning that has been taking place and fundamentally altering the genetic structure of the human species and not regulating reproduction amongst those individuals that have been genetically mod modulated, allowing new and nefarious 
genes to be able to spread through populations. So a whole lot of science and no governance. Lastly, as an example, think of the costs of the healthcare system. We get broad, sweeping, high-level summary statements that form, for example, Obamacare, but all the details missing. The experts in Congress are absolutely lacking in their ability to think, how is this going to affect the doctor? How is this going to affect the specialist? How are the insurance agencies going to deal with this? How are the um, materials and disposable suppliers going to be able to deal with this? So tuning that system that consumes one-fifth of our GDP um, was the task that I was asked to look at. And I, so I ran, and I was very much ahead. But uh, right near the election at the very end, you know, I was called in to the Democratic um, National Party's leadership and it had a, a very interesting discussion in which I was, let's say, strongly encouraged to vote the way that leadership wanted me to vote rather than my constituencies here in the 48th district in Southern California, where it's really half red and half blue, Republican and Democrat. And I was not not comfortable being a yes man to leadership. I rather wanted to be a representative of the people here in this district and the way they think and the way I think. So um, they ended up backing at the very last minute another Democrat and put about $1.6 million and bought up all of the uh, television commercial time in the last week. And, you know, in the American system, if you have more money, you win. And although we were matched dollar for dollar and I was 30% ahead in the polls, when they dropped that $1.6 million in in the last week, it just took all of the advertising. And, and I lost 126 votes out of about 190,000 cast. And it was a great way to lose. <laughs> and um, I don't regret it at all. I love running. And um, I think I brought a whole lot of Democrats and Republicans to the table to vote the way that they should have. And... Um, it was just a wonderful experience and an immersion in a political system for me and uh, sequestration of power by leadership and uh, lack of awareness of detail in the scientific and medical systems. I just find those things absolutely glaring. So the need is tremendous in our, in our political system for, you know, educated governance with field experience and, um, you know, keeping it in the back of my mind whether I'll run again. Okay, so um, bearing in mind your uh, the immunotherapy that you're developing at the moment, say you had got into uh, into into Congress, what kind of changes do you think you would have made or would like to have tried to to change to to enact that would um, have helped not just the development of your own immunotherapies, but um, other cancer research um, that's that's uh, going on in the states at the moment? or um, uh, more targeted therapies um, such as the one that you're, you're delivering at the moment? Well, the, the answers are, are easy um, because there are so many of them. You know, one of them is funding through the National Institutes of Health for Scientific Research. It's at an all-time low and uh, with cost of money and um, uh, um, other 
tax increases that we're seeing spread through the community. It's not keeping up with cost of living, that type of thing. So the NIH needs more money directed at this area, and it's just received cuts, cuts, cuts. Another one is um, regulating in a good way, not over-regulating, but right now the lack of regulations in much of the medical and scientific sector with regards to reimbursement and payer policies um, has, has permitted uh, multiple redundancies in the system where you know, insurance companies and device suppliers can take huge amounts of money from the system that could otherwise be used to lower costs within the system and lower the insurance rates of individuals. So they get a higher quality of care while paying a lower rate if you tune it. It's really a matter of tuning the uh, payer system within the United States that is extraordinarily redundant. Simply put, a place like um, England, a place like Canada, there's basically a single provider with a single bureau of administrators that administrate healthcare. In the United States, there are dozens and dozens of different um, providers with all of their own assistants and CEOs and board members and infrastructure that sucks up a lot more money in administration. Another one is in uh, transporting medical record systems. You know, the average American switches um, an insurer 17 times in their life, but none of them talk. So there's no porting of somebody's medical systems from one insurance system to another one. There's errors. People die because of those errors. It's extremely costly because of those errors. And uh, there's, again, a huge loss of efficiencies to the, uh, to the system and therefore to an individual. So that keeps costs high and disenfranchises a huge percentage of this population that can't even get insurance because they can't afford the money. There's there's a number of them. I could keep going, but at a cost of one-fifth of our GDP and rising dramatically, this healthcare system can be tuned, find tweaks that save lives, they're nonpartisan, and it saves money. And um, that's really, there's a litany of uh, reasons uh, and action items that one could follow in order to institute massive savings, increasing health insurance, um, availability while decreasing costs. That's really fascinating. It's um, it's really interesting to hear you speak so passionately about it. I think it's um, it's interesting to hear from researchers and scientists that are involved in politics and are politically aware. Um, so uh, so yeah, that's that's really interesting you. to hear you talk about. Um, to just take it back to the uh, to the treatments. What would you say, what do you think is next for your treatment? Where do you see it going or progressing in the next five years, say? Well, you know, we are, uh, we have locked down our current methodologies. We've got a low cost of goods applicable to every cancer. We're in a very good space right now with a 72% survival rate at two years, 54% at five years. Uh, there is very little to play with with what we've got going now because it's working so well. There's two things that we're going to drift towards and we are moving towards uh, with action now. One is, um, why are we only 72%? What's happening to that 28%? We just published a paper that says 
that every one of our non-responders, that 28%, they have on average 150,000 times the amount of PD-1 in their bloodstreams, these breaks on the immune system, 150,000 times more than our responders. So it's no wonder that our treatment isn't working in those people because, frankly, their immune system has been squashed down to inactivity. It's couch potatoes. <laughs> you know, nobody's moving in that immune system doing anything. There's nothing to stimulate. Our drug causes a targeting, a targeting of the cancer. Go kill the cancer stem cells, the seed of cancer. But if there's no police force, if there's no army there, everybody's eating donuts in the back of their cars, there is no way that that immune system can be mobilized. So clearly, one solution to that would be to co-administer PD-1 inhibitors or checkpoint inhibitors along with our treatment. So we were just approved a couple months ago by the US FDA to do a combination therapy. And we're very, very excited about exploring that to raise our efficacy above 72%. Secondly, um, this idea of a maintenance therapy. So you must uh, have heard that cancer cells can migrate through the blood. That's metastasis. They can run around and make new tumors. They can run down to your bone marrow and fall asleep for seven years. But while they're running around, they can be detected. And much of the world uh, burgeoning right now in diagnostics for cancer are taking little blood draws and counting the circulating tumor cells, they are called. If you have more, your cancer is getting worse over time. So they're using it as an early diagnostic, perhaps a method of seeing how the treatment is working. Are those cells decreasing in number or increasing in number? We are in an extraordinarily unique position in that we are collecting blood from dozens of patients every month in three different cancers because we do have active melanoma, ovarian, and brain cancer trials running right now and we're collecting blood eight times from each patient, we have an ability to look at the circulating tumor cell load within those individuals and do two things. Firstly, see, use it as a diagnostic. Is the patient getting better or worse? But secondly, capture those circulating tumor cells live. And to my knowledge, we're the first group in the world to be able to do this, where we can capture those circulating tumor cells live and amplify them. And now we can use them as an antigenic source to load into dendritic cells and evoke an immune response that says, go attack, attack these circulating tumor cells that equal cancer stem cells. So that allows us to do a couple things. It, it permits the idea of a maintenance therapy where we can actually put patients through our treatment. And if you're one of the lucky 72%, well, you don't need to see us again. If you're one of the unlucky 28%, you're going to get cancer again. In any case, you're not going to know at year one. Come on in, get a blood draw. We can take the circulating tumor cells and over a period of blood draws tell you if our treatment is working or not. But we could also make an updated vaccine using the circulating tumor cells, the current antigenic load of the individual in the event that the that cancer has had some genetic drift, which all cancers do. So we can use it to maintain it so people do not get recurrence. And once we're done that, my plan, my vision, is to take this to a frontline therapy. You know, logistically, it's difficult to do first. We'd have to do it second. We're going to use it as a maintenance first. 
show that it works, and then move it to front line. And can you imagine the day, Tristan, when people get diagnosed with cancer and you're told, don't worry, I just need some blood from you. The doctor does a blood draw, and that's it. From that blood, we extract the cancer stem cells or tumor-initiating cells or circulating tumor cells. They're all the same thing. We already have the monocytes, and we generate a treatment in three or four weeks, and that patient comes back to the hospital and gets a subcutaneous needle injection. No adverse events reported, no fever, no stinging, no loss of consciousness. You don't even notice any effect of the injection, and your cancer is gone before the patient has to be subjected to chemotherapy or radiation or surgical resection. So that would be my vision of where this thing's going. And we're working like mad to get there sooner rather than later. Wow. It's, uh, it's quite an incredible dream, really, isn't it? Um, and uh, if, if, it can, if the therapy can get there, uh, it really would be completely, um, completely game-changing. But yeah, I guess it's just it's just taking those next couple of steps um, to to get to get across to it. Which, when you uh, when you describe it initially, it kind of sounds like okay, maybe we can get there soon. But um, as with anything, it's uh, it's going to be a, a hell of a hell of a journey to get there. It's been absolutely fantastic talking to you, Hans. Um, and as I said earlier, um, and as you made the point that there's uh, there's probably not enough um, science, scientists in politics. You could say that there aren't enough scientists who are interested in politics as equally as there aren't enough politicians who are scientists. Um, so to, to have, to have members such as yourself who uh, are keen to get involved in that and uh, affect change on, on several different levels is, uh, is really, really encouraging. So, so thank you very much for joining us. Um, and it's been, it's been really great speaking to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all this time and, Let's all hit this hard together. It takes an army to fight this disease. So thanks to everybody else that's doing their part as well. Fantastic. Uh, well, goodbye, Hans. It's been brilliant speaking to you. And that's a wrap for our Talking Tech News podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and we're interested by the specificity and personalization provided by Hans's immunotherapies, then take a look at our upcoming Biotechniques online event, Advancing Precision Medicine 2019, by following the link in the description below. And if you would like to hear more of our podcasts, you can find them in the podcast section of our website. And join us next month for the next edition of the Biotechniques Talking Tech News podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.